0: Maybe you are married in this room, maybe you are separated, maybe you are single, maybe you've been divorced, maybe you have lost your, your husband, your wife. Uh, we come from a continuum, there's always a bell curve in any time we gather, but we're talking today as we go through the book of Ephesians about uh, God's design for marriage. Um, so hold on, no matter where you are on that continuum, because it is a, a beneficial passage for all of us. Thomas and Kathleen Hartwright, marriage is a long walk two people take Together, Sometimes the terrain is interesting, sometimes dull. At times the walk is arduous. The travelers do not know exactly where they are going or where, when they'll arrive. And I would add, and too many quit before they come to the vistas. And Cindy and I approached 34 years this July, and as we look back on our life, whether it's in five-year increments or decade increments, um, I can't articulate it any better than this. Every decade we learn things we had no comprehension we would have learned before. And now edging up to the 34 and, and we think of 40 years of marriage, not that far away. It's astonishing that the love with which I love her, the love with which she loves me was not born of human decision or human will or determination or that she and I are better than anybody else. It boils down to the simple, this simple fact. God designed marriage. And if we follow his design, it works pretty well. If we follow the world's design, it does not work. It is really that simple. For the individual in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Christ for your salvation, the same God who redeems you is the same God who designed the institution of marriage. And for each individual, it boils down to this. Will you be the husband that God wants you to be, regardless of your wife's response? Will you be the wife that God wants you to be, regardless of your husband's response? And therein lies the countercultural view to marriage. Because it's always all about me. It's about what I want, what I feel, as long as I'm loved, as long as my dreams are fulfilled, as long as, and that selfishness erodes and erases God's construct for marriage, which is, will you be the husband that I have asked you to be regardless of your wife's response? Will you be the wife God wants you to be regardless of your husband's response? And that's the, the groundwork I want you to think about as we look at this passage. I know it's hard. I've been around the block. I've done this long enough from a pastoral view, a friend view, a counseling view, I know many of you are in distress. I know a lot of you are really hurting. I know some of you are separated. Some of you are recently divorced. Some have broken an engagement. But if the God who can save you cannot help you in this other situation, what kind of God is he? He designed it. It would seem a good thing to see what that design is like and how we align ourselves to his design, not our machinations, not the world's inventions, not the world's redefinitions of what this marriage relationship is supposed to be about. God designed marriage. The Apostle Paul is going to write a long section in Ephesians 5 about marriage. and If you want to work your way to Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 21, we'll pick that up in just a moment. But the, the foundation that Paul builds on starts in Genesis chapter 2. In that passage, we won't take the time to look at it, but in that passage we know very well that that's when God has brought the animals to the man to see what he will call them. And whatever a man calls a thing, that was its name. Now, I believe Adam and the woman are the two most brilliant people to ever walk the planet, second only to Jesus Christ. They were made in the image of God, and they were in a concept, concept without sin. Complete, perfect fellowship with the God who made them. So they're not this cro evolving creature. They're image bearers of God, and they're brilliant. So Adam was given the, we might call it the classification of species. When they were brought to him, he would name them. Whatever he named them, that was its name. He made all the animals out of Adam, out of the ground, out of the dirt. The Lord God formed them. And it's a wordplay. Adam is from the dirt. But when he makes the woman, he does what? He takes from the rib and the flesh. And he, the text says, fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. The word fashioned is different than the word formed like we think of a sandman on the ground, a sand cat, a sand dog, whatever. This one was fashioned, and the word means a hand and glove. It's precision, it's designed particularly for. Now, the man has very quickly learned there's two of everything but him. So, when he awakens from the first anesthesia and the first surgery, he's aware something's happened to him. And he says, literally in the Hebrew, this one, differentiating from the animal kingdom, this one is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. He refers to himself there in a different way, not Adam, but Ish. So, when we have the declaration of intent, and maybe you've been to a wedding where the minister says something to the effect of, Is it your intent before God and these witnesses to commit yourself as husband and wife? And they blubber something inaudible. And then the minister says to the father, If the family is intact and so forth, and I did this last Saturday, a week ago. I asked the, the dad to play along with me. And I said, When I ask you, Who gives this woman to be married to this man? I want you to say loudly, I do. Not her mother and I. And it was funny because the day of the wedding, he said, now, now, why do you want me to do that? I said, trust me, I'll explain it in the ceremony. Just do me a favor. and Just say, I do, real loudly. So in the ceremony, we do that. They exchange hands. The father puts the daughter's hand in the gorilla, I mean the uh, (laughs) husband-to-be's hand, and they walk a few steps forward, and then we have made a leave, cleave, and become one flesh statement. This was not in a Western marriage handbook on how to do marriages. This is the biblical picture, and that's why we still do it this way. We're leaving the family of origin and we're going to become one flesh. And then during the ceremony, I explained that two are becoming one. It's a mystery, which Paul refers to, we'll see in a moment. But the mystery has to do with the church, not only the marriage. So why do I make the point? Well, in the end of the service, I'm going to turn this couple around. I'm going to say, let me introduce to you for the very first time, which is the funnest part of a wedding. I get to say that. The very first time, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. They were two, but now they're one. It's just a cool thing to say. And I, tell in the, I, I speak in the ceremonies about why does the wife-to-be take the husband's last name? Is it this chauvinistic american thing that we you gotta take your husband's name well think about it logically for just one second if you retain your maiden name you're keeping your father's name in fact i would argue there's no such thing logically as a maiden name it's your father's name so if you want to hyphenate it fine knock yourself out you're just hyphenating your father's name and your husband's name the world has taught us a lie. It's not about chauvinism, it's about solidarity. Two are becoming one. Ish, Ish, ah, sh- this one, she's of me. She's not like, I'll name her differently. She's part of me. We're one. So you take a name that makes you one. And that's why I have the dad say, I do, because he's one with his wife, if that marriage is intact. Say, I do, and I say, thanks for playing along with me, because you're illustrating. God the Father who creates the woman, who presents her to the man to see what he would call her, and he calls her Isha. And there's solidarity. This one is not like the rest. She's made for me. And God made a presentation of the woman to the man, and he calls her of himself. And they're one, and they're naked and not ashamed. That's God's design for marriage. That's the foundation for it, and that's what Paul is going to build upon in this section. Now, as we look at it, we need to remind ourselves the context has been, and Lloyd did a fabulous job last weekend. If you did not watch it or hear it, uh, you can do either online. You, I encourage you to, to review that message. He did a fabulous job going through a, a set of, of contrasts, of commands, of consequence, and the tension of being controlled by God's Spirit is the fight. Will I control myself? Or will I submit myself to the power of God's Spirit who indwells in me? And if you trust in Christ, he indwells in you. Because marriage isn't hard. It's impossible. And we need the Holy Spirit's power who indwells us to make us that husband God wants us to be, to make us that wife that God wants us to be, to have that relationship even as an individual. Well, with that said, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 5, if you've not already, and let's begin reading at verse 21. Let me read 21 through the end of the chapter, and let me ask you to stand one more time. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself "'Savior of the body. "'But as the church is subject to Christ, "'so also wives to their husbands and everything. "'Husbands, love your wives, "'just as Christ also loved the church "'and gave himself up for her. "'So that, purpose clause, "'so that he might sanctify her, "'having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, "'that he might present to himself "'the church in all her glory.'" "...having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. You can take a seat. Number one, sacrificial love. This passage is built on the concept of sacrificial love. It starts in Ephesians chapter five verse one, where we're told to imitate God. When we're told to imitate God, we are told God's love is sacrificial. The nature of God's love is to sacrifice for others. Man's sinful nature is selfish. In your marriage, probably not unlike mine, uh, early on, I was an incredibly selfish individual. I, I uh, found my trophy girlfriend, I bagged my trophy wife, I brought her home to my apartment, and I went out and took all of our money and consolidated it, and I bought a brand new motorcycle. <laughs> I had a wife and a motorcycle and apartment, life was good. And I spent my time hanging out with my single guy friends, taking bike trips on the road. Cindy was welcome to come along. Our first six months of marriage was, I can't use the word, it's horrible. We would go to bed at night, back to back, and I could hear her and feel her softly crying herself to sleep. We didn't like each other, we didn't know each other, we had met and dated and got married in nine months. Now, we'd known each other through college, but... We didn't date or court. We, it was very quick and it was long distance. And were it not for a couple that was married about four years, in fact, I think his brother is in this room, um, his uh, wife, this couple, pursued Cindy and me just four years ahead of us in marriage. And Karen pulled Cindy aside, and Cindy was vulnerable enough to share What in the world have I done? And Karen and Gary had a delightful relationship. They teased each other lovingly. They had just four years down the road compared to us, but they knew a lot. And they started inviting us to do things with them. And so we're now around another young couple that's figuring it out too, but they're doing it in a far better way, certainly, than I was doing it. And I saw the way he cherished her and teased her in in a good way, not a sarcastic way. But they laughed a lot together, and they took us to do things, and we became friends. I'll never forget when Cindy confided in Karen of what an idiot she'd married, and Karen told her, don't take him so seriously. And for whatever reason, that switch turned in Cindy's head, and that began our relationship working together. Now, the next year wasn't great either, but it got better we never considered divorce but we certainly weren't happy and had it not been for those that couple and others who came around us and me learning what a selfish creature that i was in the relationship to bring her into my world to do my things with my toys never once thinking about i just married this person and two were becoming one not two parallel lives to do what i wanted to do it is sacrificial The word submission is used in the passage. It's found in chapter 5, verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, before you fold your mental arms, and women get a little upset sometimes when they hear the word submission, those little hairs on the back of your neck start to stand up prickly. Uh, Before you go there, stay with me just a few minutes. Submission is a principle that is stated, and from Ephesians 5, 21 to Ephesians 6, 9, we're going to see four relationships where there is a submissive relationship. This is the first one that he explains. Submission does involve someone having authority. Now, in recent years, it's been very popular in the Christian culture to talk about mutual submission based on 521, that we're submissive to one another in the fear of Christ. And you'll hear this taught a lot. In fact, most marriage books written in the last 10 years will address mutual submission, not submission in the way the passage explains it. And it's for obvious reasons. But the problem with mutual submission is not only practical, it's theological. Practical meaning if you say we're going to have a compromised relationship. It's a 50-50 relationship. And you know the old joke. Anyone in a 50-50 relationship says you're a very poor judge of distance. I'll meet you halfway never feels like halfway. Because the way you measure it from your perspective, it's not quite enough. We always want that pound of flesh trying to figure out what you do, what I do, as opposed to sacrificial, as opposed to being the husband God wants me to be regardless of my wife's response, being the wife God wants me to be regardless of my wife's response. That's what it means to align biblically. Now, submission is always used in the sense of surrendering or relinquishing one's right or will. And we live in a culture that worships our personal rights and worships our will and determination to do what we want to do. It's countercultural to be a believer in Jesus Christ, perhaps more now than ever in this country's history. And for you to say that you have trusted Christ, number one, is going to get you in trouble. Number two, to follow the biblical definition of marriage, you're going to be an idiot by the culture. Don't let the world teach you theology, let God's Word teach you what this marriage relationship is supposed to be about. Submission does not mean inferiority. In fact, the acronym we like to use is equal value, distinct role. There were equal in value before God, but we have distinct roles. It was true in the garden. He was given a helper, another word women tend not to like, because they listen to the worlds defining that, not the words defining that. When God defines it, in the psalm, the psalmist says, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Is calling the Lord helper demeaning? Is calling Yahweh Elohim, the creator of the universe, our help a demeaning adjective? No. When we're out of resources, we don't know what to do. When we need help, we go to someone who has the ability to help us. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. So even in the garden context, God knew he needed help and they were compatible equal value but distinct roles the passage does not say that a woman is to submit to every man the passage does not say that a husband is to tell his wife to submit and i warn you not to try that <laughs> although i've seen men lord it over their wives in colossians 3:18 and if you're in a community group that follows the message questions Uh, This is one we have for you. It says, to be subject uh, to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Paul embellishes it a little more, elaborates, explains a little more. And the idea of fitting is a proper relationship, a proper way of relating. So you're submissive to him and a proper way of relating to him. I would argue a nuance Sometimes we hear that the wife's role is to be submissive and the husband's role is to be the head. And I would change that. I would say a wife's response is submissive. Submission is not a role. Were submission a role, all the wife would say is, yes, dear, yes, dear, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear. That would be a role. Submission is a response, not a role. And we must be careful that we have overemphasized the wife's role, of, role or response as a submissive woman over against the weight of this passage. Three verses talk to the wife; seven to the husband. Don't miss it. And that's where the burden will be. Now, two good resources. One is free. It's an ebook that has just come out. Um, You can even download it now. I think there's probably enough bandwidth. You can go on and download it even this moment. But uh, this is a book that basically is in response to almost 30 years of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood's efforts. And now the generation of 20- and 30-year-olds are responding to it in a good way of talking about this this good, uh, joyful marriage that you can have. Um, understanding a Relationship with Christ. It's called Good, the Joy of Christian Manhood and Woman." It's a very short read, a very small e-book you can download for free. The other book is Shameless Sell: a Wife Promotion. Uh, this is Cindy's book, my wife's book. And she wrote this. Um, uh, it, it's a unique book. I don't just say it's a great book because Cindy wrote it, although that's true. It is a great book because of what she did in the book. She, she interviewed women... Who were Christian women, but not in a typical Christian marriage where you got a godly husband and a godly wife and happily ever after. For example, she interviewed a woman who's married to a non-believer. What does submission look like there? She interviewed a woman, uh, a composite of women who have a uh, chronically ill husband. She interviewed women who make more money than their husbands. She interviewed a woman who's a nationally recognized leader, and her husband is, oh, he's married to so-and-so. And she interviewed some women in the African-American culture, which is a very different culture of submission and leadership, primarily a matriarchal home. What does it look like for you to be submissive? So it's a, it's a great book, All True Stories, um, and she begins the book uh, talking about why she would write such a book, inviting sort of the attacks that she's going to get. I am opinionated, Cindy writes. If you didn't know Cindy, that's the duh of the day. (laughs) I am independent. I am strong-willed. I am not afraid to make decisions. I am happy to take leadership. I am confident. I am also submissive to my husband. To many women, this seems much like a confession of a person at an Alcoholics Anonymous you know, hi, I'm Cindy, and I'm submissive. Even writing these words rankles me. If I am all those things, I say I am. Opinionated, independent, confident. Why did God choose me to be submissive? What was God thinking? And off she goes. And she does go off. But it's not the typical stock and trade you're going to hear about submission. It's what submission look like in real life when it's not a Ken and Barbie Christian, when it's a real world trying to navigate our way through this. Third, we have the term headship. It's used twice in verse 23. Uh, Christ is the head, as uh, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of his church. Headship is another term that uh, people have deconstructed and said, well, that doesn't mean what it means. That means like the source of something, like the, the, a river would have a source water. Christ is the head of the church. Wayne Grudem, who's a name some of you know and a dear friend of Cindy's and mine, he is a scary scholar. Uh, Wayne Grudem uh, took on the task of trying to find any time the word head was ever used for source. He went after 2,336 times the word kephale is used outside the New Testament. In other words, how did the Greek language use this word head? He couldn't find one instance where it meant source. It always meant a leader of some kind. It always meant a person, like in a military context. It never once meant source. He concludes, if we're interested in the biblical interpretation that is based on facts of historical and linguistic research, then it would seem wise to give up once and for all the claim that kephale, the word head, can mean source. Or to sum it up simply, it has authority. Now, Let's move to the relation piece of this. There are four relationships that Paul is going to articulate in this. He, in verse 23 and 4, says Christ is the head of his church. So the headship there is Christ is our sovereign, our leader of his church. But then there's four relationships. The wife to her husband, the church to Christ, children to parent, and slaves to master. Let's just take one of those as an illustration. The church is submissive to Christ. Christ is our head. If it's mutual submission, does the church sit down with Jesus? Jesus, we don't like this part of the Bible where you say such and such. We think we should compromise on this, Jesus. I mean, come on. After all, it's 2014. You get with it, Jesus. And Jesus, okay, I'll, I'll cave. You don't have to obey those rules. Those sins aren't sins anymore. It's okay for you to be that way. No. Jesus Christ is not mutually submissive to his church. He's the head of his church. So in all the relational dynamics in the passage that Paul gives us, submission always has a head and one who responds to that headship. Does that mean a husband is always right? No. Does that mean a husband is always going to be kind and godly and good in his leadership? No. And Paul knows that, and God knows that, and that's why he moves in the way of the passage to the man in verse 25-25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, sacrificial love began in chapter 5, verse 1, and now it comes back in full force in chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands are commanded to seek your wife's highest good. Husbands are commanded to put their wives' needs above themselves. Historically, when I would come home from work, And the kids were small and the house was busy and clamorous. There were a few things I wanted to do. I wanted to get my remote controls, sit in my chair, get my mail, get my drink, and watch my news for 30 minutes before dinner. I see the eyebrows go up. Yeah, that's how selfish I was. to sacrificially love cindy is to walk in that door and say what does my wife need today how do i love cindy before myself how do i put myself aside and say i need to love my wife and care for what communicates love to cindy and that of course is a puzzle you never figure out you just cheap it's like jigsaw you just keep trying pieces over the years The culture would never tell you this. In a way, the husband's being submissive because he's dying to self. So as I look at this passage, show me a man who sacrificially loves his wife, who puts his wife's interest above his own, who cares for her, who nourishes and protects her as Christ does his church. Show me a man who's living that way. I can't promise you a wife that's responding, but I would sure say it lends itself to an environment where this issue of headship and submission is not going to be much of a discussion. Because if my intent as a husband who loves his wife as Christ of the church is to put Cindy's needs before mine, to find out what she's thinking, to know what's in her heart, to know what she's concerned about, Is it really going to be hard when we make decisions together? Which, by the way, we do all the time. You know the old saw about the couple gets married and the wife says, you know, I'm going to make all the small decisions and the husband's going to make all the big decisions. And the wife says, and honey, I'll tell you when there's a big decision. (laughs) Cindy and I have developed a fabric at almost 34 years of marriage that... um, when, when I see the hurt and know friends of mine who hurt and their struggles, I go home and I hug my wife. And I say, thanks for sticking in there with me. Thanks for staying with me when I was a selfish idiot. Thanks for loving me when I was hard to be loved. The world tells it, it's all about me and my needs and what I want. God tells you, you be the husband God wants you to be regardless of your wife's response. You be the wife God wants you to be regardless of your husband's response. And then trust him. So countercultural. It's insane in the culture in which we live for me to say those words. If God designed this relationship, does he know how it works? If the same God that redeems you designed the marriage that you're in, are you being the godly husband he wants you to be? Are you being the godly wife he wants you to be? And that's all you get out of this, that's a lot. That's a lot. The burden of the passage is on the man. We're going to fail. We all fail. We all mess up. Some have been divorced. Some remarried. Some are struggling. Some are separated. It's life. It's reality. We all have stuff. None of us are doing this perfectly. We're sinful people. The sinful nature is hard to kill. God's nature is sacrificial love. The sinful nature is selfish love. And there's never a more up-close-and-personal picture of selfish love dying for another person than right here. Isn't it interesting that he says, the mystery is great, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. And if we had time, we'd go to Revelation 19, and I'd read verses 6 to 9 to you. In that passage, we're reminded of the wedding supper of the Lamb of God. In this glorious language, John is given by a revelation from Christ. He welcomes them to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He tells them to write it down. And as John writes it, he he, he explains that the, the works of the saints are righteous, like clean and white linen. If you paid attention in Ephesians 5, those references are used there as well. Why does the bride wear white? Because the traditional wedding ceremony said this is her condition before she's married, so she wears a white dress? No, it's because the Scripture taught that the wife was a picture of the bride of Christ, and the reason she wore white is because Christ had made her righteous. And that when Christ and the Lamb of God is married to his church— she is righteous because he sacrificially died for her in her place on her behalf instead of her, and he makes her righteous so that she could walk down the aisle and be presented to the husband. It begins with a marriage in the garden. It's chock full of story and narrative and a failure of marriage all through the Bible, and it ends with the marriage of the Lamb of God and his bride, the church. So when I officiate a wedding and I get to turn them around, and my most enjoyable part is to say, may I introduce to you for the very first time Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. I love that part of the wedding. And I challenge them, you now represent a picture of Christ in the church. Your marriage is far more important than two people living happily ever after. Your marriage is a light to a dying, twisted, sad, broken, hurting, bleeding world. That's why loving your wife as Christ of the church is so important. Gary Thomas wrote a book called Sacred Marriage, and I love the subtitle of the book. What if God meant marriage to make you holy, not happy? Thousands of books about loving yourself. Precious few about dying to self. Thousands of voices in the culture to tell you, you deserve this, you deserve that. A real loud voice telling you, will you do it my way? I designed it. I know you. I know everything about you. I still love you. I've got the answers right here. Will you be the husband that God wants you to be, regardless of your wife's response? Will you be the wife Christ wants you to be, regardless of your husband's response? I can't change Cindy. Cindy can't change me. But the Holy Spirit can. And it's a lot easier to change when your spouse is following Christ closely than when they're not. Our Father in heaven, we have taken a thimble of information That's like an ocean of information from the word about marriage and family. You designed it. You intended it to work a certain way. We fail a thousand times in a thousand ways. Thanks that you forgive us. As we acknowledge and confess our sin, you are willing to forgive us. For those who have been hurt deeply, I pray your comfort and not guilt. For those who need help, that they will find it, that they will seek it out, that they won't sit and let life go by thinking that some future situation is going to be better than the present one. The same God who redeems us from death and hell is the God who designed marriage. And may we align ourselves with your word no matter what the world does. We need your power to do it, and you've given us your spirit. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.